the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. I've had a lot of great questions sent in, but we always prefer your live calls. It's a little more interesting. Uh, All you have to do is call 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send your questions in uh, directly to us via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Uh, I remind you every day that if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. A couple of things before we get started. Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the date day program as usual. And we look forward to... Um, what she has to share. So, ladies, it's a day that we set aside especially for you. Um, the other thing I want to just kind of share with you, we're having a, a, a Bible study tonight. It's one of those Bible studies that is um, so full of promise and answers as well. Psalm, uh, it's a psalm, but it's in Isaiah chapter 55. Uh, so we're doing that tonight. You can watch that at calvarysa.com. Uh, via the live stream uh, video, uh, or you can join us. We've always got a lot of room on Wednesday nights, so it would be a great time for you to come and listen to a study that I think is immensely important. And I get to share a little bit of a vision that God has given me uh, with, for our ministry as well. So that's tonight here at 7 o'clock. The only final reminder is please remember to be in prayer constantly for Joy of Jesus. We start on Saturday at 11 o'clock at uh, Travis Park in downtown San Antonio from 11 until 3. Um, There will be thousands upon thousands of people there throughout the day. Uh, It's an opportunity to to just see, I think, what Ground Roots uh, ministry is really all about. It's, It's a great opportunity to share Jesus. We would love to meet you, and the more the merrier. So, uh, we invite you down. If you do stop by uh, from the radio audience, uh, find somebody in a red shirt and tell them to come and find me. We'd love to meet you. And Paul and I will be there to do that. So that is this coming Saturday. The weather is supposed to be great, nice and warm. So I look forward to seeing you there. Okay, let's go to our first phone call. Anonymous uh, waiting on the line for us. Anonymous, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, yes, Pastor, um, I have a question for you. Uh, when we as Christians, you know, try to live a, try to live a good Christian life, you know, try to do what is right, and live, live accordingly to God's will. Okay, sir, my question is, 
why does God still allow suffering to go on in our lives? I'll listen to your response on the radio. Okay, I can do that. Uh, you know, Anonymous, one Bible study that I can refer you to is the story in Matthew's Gospel uh, where the storm comes up. Jesus sends uh, his disciples to the other side of the lake, and they're met with this fierce storm, I believe satanically caused. God allowed that. Uh, and and I, I give uh, the, uh, the the large part of that study is about the storms in life. Now, the reason God allows suffering, the reason God allows storms in life is to correct us, to redirect us, to strengthen us. There's all kinds of things. Now, we don't like storms. We don't like trials. And certainly none of us like suffering. But if we are honest and open, we look back on those times we were really, really struggling with something. And then we got through it with Jesus and we emerged from the out the other side of that trial more like Jesus. Paul calls it sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. And I think one of the things that, that motivates questions like this, and not you, because I, I think I know your heart now, you've called often enough. Uh, but, but we have this false sense of, uh, well, since God saved me, I, I ought to, everything ought to go well. Uh, if I become a Christian, I shouldn't have any problems. I shouldn't have any trials. I shouldn't suffer at all. And yet the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus himself suffered more than any other person. The Apostle Paul, who is my, my other hero in the faith besides Jesus, he suffered immensely. Look at Second Corinthians chapter 12 and read the kind of things that happened to him. And yet God used them in his sovereign power. He used those things to shape and mold his servants and, and make them more like he is. And we're not above our master. He suffered, so we're going to suffer. People hated him and insulted him, so we're going to be insulted and hated. And I think what we have to do is learn to embrace trials, not enjoy them. That would be silly. But I think we need to learn to embrace trials. And let me give you two reasons why. One, trials are common to everybody, saved or unsaved. The unsaved have to go through trials on their own. We, when we are in a trial, Jesus is right there in the middle of the trial with us. And in the, in the, the, the trial, we always feel his presence. There's another reason that we need to embrace trials. And that's that in those trials, we find ourselves holding on to Jesus. Now, Anonymous, if you're anything like most people, when things are going well, it's sort of like we go on autopilot. But when we're going through difficult times, we hold on to Jesus so tightly because we know how desperate we are for his help. And I think it's in those kinds of trials we learn how sweet he is. Let me give you an example, and this is a real-life example from my life in Paulus. Uh, after I got saved, we were homeless. Um, um, you know, I'd made a lot of money, been very successful in business, and yet I, I just, running away from God, you do silly things, and I lost it all, and I lost a lot of money I didn't have, so things were really, really tough. So we went from living um, a, a very luxurious life to being homeless in a period literally of about three months. That's how bad things were. And what Paul and I learned, we lived in somebody's garage, a flea-infested garage, Anonymous. And what we learned at the very beginning of our walk together, now remember, Paul had been a Christian for 13 years and I'm a brand new believer. What we learned is that Jesus was enough in that garage. Forget the shame and the embarrassment of being homeless. I had two high school age students, my sons. And, and it was an unbelievably difficult time for them. And yet what we learned living in that garage was in the worst of all circumstances from a human perspective, the presence of Jesus was sweet. The presence of Jesus was sufficient. And the presence of Jesus... Well, the Bible says in his presence there's fullness of joy. And what God used that time for in Paul's life and mine was to help us learn the lesson that no matter what we're going through, he's always going to be there. So let's once and for all get over the idea that 
that God owes us a good time or owes us a safe time or owes us a comfortable life. He doesn't. We live in a fallen world. There's always going to be pain. There's always going to be suffering. He allows it. And that only, by that I, I only mean he doesn't stop it. Because we need it. Sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings is an enormous privilege, albeit a painful one. So, Anonymous, I hope that answers your question. You have the best questions. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to the next call. David from San Antonio. David, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you? I'm doing well, David. How about you? I'm doing okay. I have a question for you. Um, you know, many times we hear you say, just be with Jesus, or mm-hmm. you'll make reference to when you go for a walk, um, you know, you're with Jesus and you're talking to him, and that's all great. But I have a, I have a question for you in that um, when Lazarus died, you know, they told him, Jesus, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. So obviously Jesus could only be at one place at one time when he was here. Then when, in the book of Acts, when Stephen was stoned and he looked up to heaven and he said, look, I see one sitting at, sitting down the throne. So Jesus was in heaven sitting on the throne. Then I can't remember the actual verbatim, but uh, it said when his work was finished, he sat, he sat on his throne, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I don't understand how you say you're with, you're, uh, with Jesus or Jesus is with you when I really think, do you mean the Holy Spirit's with you, teaching you about Jesus? Because that's what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come and do, which is to speak and glorify Jesus. And I just want some correction on that for myself. Okay, David, I, I understand I understand the question. Uh, two things. One, when Stephen looked up to heaven, he saw Jesus standing. Uh, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, and, and that's metaphor. God doesn't have a hand. The Father doesn't have a hand. God is spirit. Uh, but the right hand is a power hand. And that's where he ever lives to make intercession for us. And when Stephen, the first martyr of the church, when Stephen um, was being stoned, uh, the heavens opened and Jesus stood to receive him. So that's a, that's an important distinction in that story. I know it doesn't have anything to do with your question, but but uh, that's important. Jesus stood for that moment. The only man that's ever looked at him and see Jesus stand and, and receive him was uh, the, the martyr Stephen. Uh, when I say just be with Jesus, now you have to remember that when the when the disciples were were finally crushed, crestfallen, because Jesus made them aware that they didn't want to believe it, he told them over and over, "We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles." Um, he told them when they finally would open their heart and receive it. He told him, don't be afraid. John chapter 14, in the upper room, he said to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. And then he told them, why in my father's house are many rooms and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And that's important because they were crestfallen. And Jesus promised them in that upper room discourse from John 14 through John 17. He promised them, that he wouldn't leave them as orphans, that it was good for them that he goes, because when I go, he said, I will send another, and the the Greek language here is another me to you, the Holy Spirit. So you're correct, the Holy Spirit is in us. But remember what Jesus said next, he said, when he comes, he will testify of me. So it's the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to come into the presence of the Lord. But it is the presence of the Lord. So when I say just be with Jesus, I'm literally talking to Jesus. Just like if you and I would go for a long walk, David, it would be um, awkward if we didn't say anything. We would be there together. We're brothers in the Lord. And so we would talk. So the Holy Spirit enables me to talk to Jesus 
again remember that his ministry is to reveal the person of Christ to us. So the Holy Spirit never testifies of himself. Jesus said of that. So I talk to the Holy Spirit occasionally. In fact, when I get up in the morning, usually it's good morning, Father, good morning, Jesus, good morning, Holy Spirit. But from that point forward, it's just pretty much all Jesus. And here's why that's important. Jesus was sent by the Father to reveal the character, the nature, and the person of the Father. Jesus is the only way we can know who the Father is. The only way we can have relationship, fellowship with the Father. And then Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come and he will testify of me. And so the Holy Spirit's never testifying of himself. When you go to these kind of wild, charismatic churches and they're always praising the Holy Spirit and worshiping and doing crazy things, if Jesus gets lost, that's not really the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm literally walking with Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I mean when I say just be with Jesus. And, and David, it really is the answer to everything in life. It really is the answer to everything in life. When I'm with Jesus, the good things are better. The bad things are bearable and turn out to result in his glory. The painful things are also bearable because Jesus is there and he understands what I'm going through because he went through so much worse. And those are really, really important things to remember. So uh, I, I realize it's the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. But then he said this, Christ in me, through the Apostle Paul, Christ in me, the hope of glory. So Jesus is in you, David. Jesus is in me, in the person of the Holy Spirit. But when we're talking, we're talking to Jesus. One final thought on this, David. I think one of the reasons that people have a hard time with the idea, just be with Jesus, is because when we talk about God in a general sense, when we talk about the Father that, that is, is beyond our abilities to comprehend, um, I think we fail to see him through the filter or the lens of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so we see the Father. And I think sometimes our relationship gets just a little too distant with a Father that's, that, that lives in unapproachable light, a Father that we can't really, really, really understand. Jesus allows us to do that. So that's why I tell people here at our church all the time, David, when you pray, talk to Jesus. Talk to Jesus. He's the one that gives us access to the throne of grace. He's the one that sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to live holy and upright lives in this present age. But make no mistake, Jesus is the one that was sent so that we could relate to because Jesus became what we are. He became human, a flesh and blood. So David, that's what I mean. I hope that clears it up for you. Great question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question that came in today from Carlos from the Northeast Side. Uh, hi, Pastor Ron. I wanted to ask you if you can recommend any book of the Bible or any verses for when someone else feels lost. I'm sorry, for when someone feels lost in life. I know people in general have it worse than me, but I just feel like sometimes I don't have Jesus or God by my side and I feel hopeless. I guess the struggles of life just get to me. My wife is having heart issues and it's hard to get answers from doctors at times. I would like to ask a prayer. Uh, from you and your wife, thank you for your response. Carlos, I'm so sorry that your wife is going through these difficult issues. Having been through some hard issues myself over the last couple of years, uh, I understand how scary it is, and I understand how difficult it is to get answers. You know, sometimes we go to doctors and we think they're going to give us an answer and diagnose it, and they'll say, look, I can fix it or I can't fix it. But I learned that there's a whole lot of I don't knows from doctors. And they're kind of guessing. It's sort of like fixing a car. When a, a good mechanic, I used to be in the car business, so when a good mechanic is trying to diagnose a problem, uh, he starts by disqualifying things first. And I think with heart issues, it's much the same way. So please let your wife know that I will be praying for her. Now, dealing with the rest of the question, uh, Carlos, what I want you to do is not worry about how you feel. You see, how you feel has no bearing on whether or not Jesus is by your side. 
if Jesus is by your side, that means he's there even if you don't feel like he is. And that's the one thing I want you to understand. How we feel means nothing at all. We have to overcome how we feel with what we know. And, of course, what we know is the promises the Bible makes. Now, you asked if there's any books of the Bible or any verses for when you feel lost in life. Yeah, let me just ask you, Carlos, and you can even start memorizing it. Romans chapter 8. A couple of years ago, our our um, our Bible teacher for the uh, academy, Pastor Samuel, who went to uh, to Alaska, uh, we planted a church out there. Um, he told them that if they can memorize Romans chapter eight, uh, then they don't have to take the final again. They and a whole bunch of those kids memorized Romans chapter eight just to get out of the final. But see, what Samuel knew is that when Romans chapter eight was hidden in their heart then they had the ammunition they needed to fight those times when they would feel lost in life. You know, sometimes if things are good, we feel like uh, God is always there. He's surrounding us, no problem. Uh, But most of life, most of life, Carlos, is in the middle of those good times and painful times. And there are times when Jesus doesn't feel close because he's teaching you to walk by faith. He's teaching you to mature in your faith by holding on to what the Bible says instead of being influenced or swayed by how you feel. So, again, how you feel is irrelevant. It's those times you feel like he's not near where your faith has to kick in and say, but I know you are. Let me just give an example, and this will, I think, uh, help David's question a moment ago uh, as well, help him understand. When I walk out in the morning, uh, today was a good example. Uh, It was cloudy outside. The rain stopped, and it was cloudy outside. I couldn't see the sun. And uh, the first thing I do is is I go out, we're beginning our exercise, and I'll say, good morning, Father, good morning, Jesus, good morning, Holy Spirit. When I say good morning, Jesus, I always look at the sun. Now, for me, and this isn't me worshiping the sun, this is just a symbol of God's faithfulness, Jesus' presence. The sun always comes up in the same place every morning. It sets the same place every evening. And I'll look to that eastern sky, I'll see the beautiful sun, and I will say, Jesus, I know you're there. God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for always being present. Now, on a morning like today, Carlos, when I got up and I couldn't see the sun because of the gray, because of the clouds, I said, good morning, Father. I said, good morning, Jesus. I looked at that same place in the eastern sky. And I said this, I can't see you today, but I know you're there. I know you're always there. And see, that's faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. In your case, Carlos, I would say we're to walk by faith and not by feelings. Remember, when you feel hopeless, the enemy is going to try to seize and use your hopelessness as a weapon against you. And that's when you have to fight by faith. And that's when you got to fight like crazy for all you're worth to get close to Jesus. He's always there. He will never leave you or forsake you. If you believe that, then you've got the ammunition you need when you don't feel his presence. And this is a question I get all the time, Carlos. So Romans chapter 8, if you will just get a hold of the promises in that one chapter... If I was lost on a desert island somewhere and I could only take one chapter in the whole Bible with me, it would be Romans chapter 8. And the reason it would be Romans 8 is because everything that I need, I am more than a conqueror through him who loved us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Those are the things that we need to hold on to. So Carlos, I'll be praying for you and for your wife. 
340-9585. Here's a caller that just called and asked this question. Uh, she is a caregiver for a family, and the boy that she takes care of is saved. Uh, the rest of the family is not saved. The little boy is being disciplined for calling a sister a girl, but his sister doesn't identify with the gender, and the parents are asking little boy not to call his sister a girl. The caregiver would like advice on what to tell the little boy. Uh, I don't know how old the little boy is, caller, um, but it's our responsibility to ask, uh, to, to honor our parents. But at this time, um, we have to do what God says rather than what men says. So uh, I would just say uh, um, the reality is this little boy has a little sister, and uh, if the parents or the girl don't want the gender to be um, used, um, just, I would. My problem is, I'm sorry, you're my sister, and then I would take that opportunity to share Jesus. Hope that helps. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. We've got thirty minutes left in the program. We'd love your calls. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our show. Let's get right to the phones. We've got Todd on line one from San Antonio. Todd, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you? Good, Todd. Thank you. Uh. Yes, I just needed to ask you a question. It's <clears throat> it's not so complex. It's about a marriage situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if a man and a woman are married and they're of different faiths, one's Christian and the other one is Catholic, and they're married uh, for 10 years, actually, and um, halfway through the marriage, the uh, woman, uh, she talks to a priest, and she, the priest tells her that, uh, they're married uh, in the in the uh, courts, not in the church. And halfway through the marriage, the priest tells the woman that she's not allowed to be intimate with her husband because they're not married in the Catholic Church. And so she stops being intimate with him for five years, and then he he, uh, he divorces her uh, because uh, of she's not intimate with him for five years, and uh, he doesn't want to marry in the Catholic Church. Uh, what would your response be to that scenario? Boy, Todd, that's a difficult one. And one of, one of the reasons that we tell people not to be unequally yoked, uh, people that marry unbelievers or people from different religions, um, they just don't understand the pain that they're in. And this kind of a, of a, a circumstance is what often results. Obviously, the first thing I would say is that the, the counsel from the priest is, is from the very pit of hell. Uh, it is an ungodly um, Bible opposing position uh, and uh, I think a long time ago the man and his wife should have gone together to the priest and says wait a minute what you told me is contradicting what Paul writes to the church at Corinth that we're not to deny one another intimacy um, and and uh, you, you know uh, if in fact uh, the wife is unwilling to repent um, then, then my my personal response to that, if it was somebody in our church, uh, I would tell them that the wife has abandoned the marriage. Uh, I wouldn't tell him to stay. Uh, I also wouldn't tell him to divorce. Uh, I would I would tell him that the wife has abandoned the marriage. You're free to do what God wants you to do, and then to seek the Lord in prayer. Uh, but 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 five years of of withholding. Um, physical relations uh, from a husband or from a wife if the situation reversed uh, is is in my view abandonment and uh, if he got divorced I would tell him um, that God understands I would tell him God still hates divorce and obviously there's still a lot of pain that you've experienced because of it uh, but at the same time I would tell that man that he would be free to remarry if that was the situation and and uh, I would be very sensitive and tender. I would understand the pain that's involved here. Um, but if you're giving this counsel, Todd, to somebody else, um, 
just sort of be willing to walk through it with them because this is a very, very difficult passage. If the situation is as described, I would consider that abandonment and then grounds for divorce if, in fact, through prayer, the Lord gave uh, him that freedom to do so. So, Todd, thanks for the question. Those are always painful situations. Let me say one more time before we go to Eddie uh, in Floresville. Um, unequally yoked marriages are the source of the most and greatest pain that I deal with as a pastor over my almost 25 years here at Calvary Chapel. Do not even entertain, don't even date somebody who doesn't love Jesus as much as you do. And I would I would say one other thing, Todd, before I, I move on to Eddie. Uh, I would tell the man that, that God is pleased that he didn't um, abandon God for another person, even if that person was his wife. So thank you very much. Let's go to Floresville, line two, Eddie calling. Thanks for holding. Eddie, you're on the air. Well, thanks, Pastor Ron. I have a simple question. Okay. Uh, I was reading Daniel 3, and... Uh, where uh, the three persons get dropped to the furnace and mm-hmm. it's heated seven times hotter. I believe it's Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. But it's yep. heated seven times hotter, and I was just wondering what the meaning of the heated seven times higher means. And uh, I'm impressed by your answers. I'm going to hang up and just listen, and I appreciate you, you taking my uh, question. Pastor. My pleasure, Eddie. Thank you. One of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament. Um, you're right. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, I think, and we're not told specifically, but my reading of the, the chapter um, is is the furnace turned up. Now, the furnace that, that was would, would be where garbage was was uh, burned. It would it would be used as a source of heat for other things. When Nebuchadnezzar got mad because they wouldn't bow down before him, he went absolutely crazy, and he turned the heat up seven times higher. And it was so hot, we're told in Daniel chapter 3, that whenever his soldiers, Nebuchadnezzar's own men, got close to it, they perished because of the heat of the fire. Now, I think the purpose of that, and, I, and I'm going to use the term I always use, Eddie, and that term is sin is insane, and I think that's why we're given that story, we're given those details. Sin isn't reasonable, sin isn't logical, logical sin can't be explained or rationalized. Sin is insane. Now, think about Nebuchadnezzar for a moment. And since you're reading Daniel chapter 3, be sure to read Daniel chapter 4 because that's when Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. But um, if you really wanted to punish somebody, you'd turn the fire down and make him suffer. You certainly wouldn't turn it up so high that you lost your own people. But sin is so insane that he wasn't thinking and he just went to an extreme and, and just getting near the fire was enough to cause someone to perish. So how did this turn out? Well, of course, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire, bound by ropes, Nebuchadnezzar walks over to the fire. Remember, it's seven times hotter. He didn't perish. This is God sort of protecting him. And he asked the question, how many people did we throw in the fire? And they said, well, we threw three in there. And he responded by saying, well, then why do I see four and the four is like the Son of God? Well, the whole idea behind that story is in the fire. And this is a great um, um, illustration for you, too, Anonymous, who called at the beginning of the program. Um, With Jesus in the fire with the three young Hebrews, though they could have, uh, they've been unbound, they could have gotten out of the fire, but they chose not to. And the reason they chose not to is being in a fire with Jesus is better than being away from the fire on your own. And all I know is those moments, however many there were, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in that fire when Jesus showed up, it was the best experience of their lives. 
It's one of those stories that illustrate what I said earlier to Anonymous when I told him that the best thing that can happen to us is to be with Jesus, and if it has to be in a fire, that's okay. Because we end up more like him. And of course, they were rescued from the fire without harm, and that was the, the, the very thing that began the process of winning Nebuchadnezzar to Jesus. It was a painful process for him, but that was what began. He saw something he couldn't explain. So, Eddie, that's a great, great story. Um, I, I have um, the whole book of Daniel that I've taught through a couple of times on our website, calvaryessay.com. And I had a lot of fun uh, teaching that chapter. So uh, uh, it's all free. You can go listen to it, and uh, I think you will enjoy it. Thanks, Eddie. appreciate the call very, very much. Here is a question that comes from Karen from our email inbox. She asks, could I please explain the meaning of Psalm 149? It seems a little out of place. The saints are inflicting vengeance and punishment on the nations and peoples. Is this really going to happen, or is it more of a metaphor, or is this purely a Jewish psalm? Karen, the last part, the last question you asked, is this purely a Jewish psalm, is very insightful. Every mention of saints in the Old Testament refers to Jews. It is purely a Jewish psalm. It is all and only about God's people, Israel. Uh, It has nothing to do with a saint in the New Testament construct. So this is purely a Jewish psalm, and uh, it is, uh, it's a small psalm, uh, but it's a psalm that begins with praising. In fact, the last five psalms in our Bibles begin and end with praise. It's worship. Um, but when you said the saints are inflicting vengeance, it is a psalm that looks through the history of Israel. And, and it would be in those times where under people like Samson or under people uh, like, like any of the other judges, um, where where God's people were getting gaining victory over their oppressors, whether they're they're uh, Babylonians or Philistines or Assyrians or or Amalekites or any of the others, and so this is just uh, at the end of the Psalms. This is just uh, the the psalmist through the power of the Holy Spirit, looking back at the history of Israel and their great victories given them given to them by God, and by celebrating the victories of God, inflicting vengeance and punishment. Now remember, these nations and punish, peoples needed to be punished. They were, they were God-haters and God-opposers. And as we learn in the book of Judges, you know, uh, God, in punishing his own people, disciplining them, he allowed them to be overtaken by different groups of people, whether it's the Philistines, the Midianites, or the Amalekites, or any of the others. Uh, but but at some point, the people would begin crying out to God, and God would hear their prayers, and then he would send a judge to deliver them by destroying the enemies. And so what they're doing is praising the Lord. This is a psalm of worship. They're praising God for faithfully delivering them through those difficult times, even when the people of God didn't deserve it. So I hope that answers your question, Karen. Very insightful, and this is also good for some of you reading the prophets. Whenever uh, Daniel, as an example, mentions the saints, um, a Jewish prophet would have no concept of a New Testament saint. So the saints, when Daniel speaks a lot about the saints uh, in his prophecy, uh, it's always a reference to God's people, Israel. Good question. Thank you, Karen. I appreciate it. 340-9585. Here's a question from Nacho from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor Ron, as you can tell, I'm doing my devotions in the book of Revelation. So I think a few more questions are going to be coming your way. Today, I want to ask you about Revelation 7. At what point in time during the Great Tribulation does the Antichrist reveal himself if we follow the chronology of the seals, it would seem to be towards the beginning. And when do the 144,000 to be sealed by God start their ministries? Nacho, uh, you're right about the, the revelation of the Antichrist. After the rapture of the church, the Antichrist is going to come to power. Now, it's going to be slow and subtle at first. He's going to be somebody probably that nobody's ever heard of, and he's going to come into power. 
He's going to be supernaturally, although it's an evil supernatural, he's going to be supernaturally empowered. He's going to be given wisdom um, um, from the devil himself. Uh, He is going to be a man who captivates the hearts and the minds of the people on earth. Um, he's going to have explanations for the rapture of the church when when the world is is uh, um, upside down because millions upon millions upon millions of people have been suddenly taken away. He's going to have the answers. He is going to be in a position to negotiate a peace treaty between um, Israel, the Jews, and uh, their Arab neighbors. Uh, he's going to allow, he's going to come up with a plan to allow, Daniel says he actually actually measures the, the, the original site of Solomon's temple. And it's going to be found just outside what we know is the, the mosque um, that, that sits on that, that temple to, or, or next to that temple site. Uh, and, and he is going to um, promise peace. And to Jews, it's going to look like he's going to deliver on peace, a peace they've never been able to find. And so he's going to emerge slowly at first, but his thirst for power is going to be overwhelming. And in the second half of the Great Tribulation, uh, he is going to be ravenous for the blood of those who oppose him, most certainly the Jews. Now, the 144,000 they're sealed by God. There are 144,000 Jewish evangelists. God's going to seal them. It's a seal of protection. Uh, think think of 144,000 Apostle Pauls, um, only indestructible, uh, protected by God so no harm can come to them. They have work to do, and the time is short. Uh, they're going to start their ministry in the beginning of the second half of the Great Tribulation. So at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the Great Tribulation, they're going to be sent out to all points on the earth and lead the greatest revival in the history of the world. I love the anonymous questions, Nacho, so as you do your devotions, you keep bringing the questions. That's a great one. Here is a question from Mick from our email account. With all the debate over Columbus Day versus Indigenous Peoples Day, isn't that a shame? A friend of mine and I got into a conversation about just how much we white Americans beat ourselves up over the things of the past. From his perspective, he says, we're a country literally built on the backs of slaves. From the early days of the railroad and textile manufacturing to today's for-profit prison slave labor, not to mention us getting goods from slave labor overseas or the slavery in the sex and human trafficking market. Well, your friend has got a bleak outlook, doesn't he? He's been reading too much news. Then he says, God repeatedly makes the Israelites repent through generations for sins they didn't do, but their parents did. And as we read in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit through Paul instructed the Christian church to repent for the collective sins that individuals were not all a part of. So are we responsible for what our ancestors did in a godly, repentant way? His friend concluded, yes, we are. What are your thoughts on this issue? Uh, Mick, I would say your friend knows nothing of his Bible. Um, When God repeatedly uh, required the Israelites to repent for the generational sin, uh, it was because they were still involved in the sins of their fathers. Uh, Deuteronomy and Leviticus both make it very, very clear that God will never punish the sons for the sins of the father. That the man is only responsible for the sins that he commits. Uh, in fact, in Jeremiah, he says, uh, my, my teeth are set on edge because of this saying, well, you know, I'm being punished for the sins of my father. God's answer to him through Jeremiah was, no, you're not. You're being punished for your own sins. There's nothing that we can do about the past. The old is gone and the new has come. Now, your friend, and and this is not a a healthy debate because it's based on a a, a debating partner who's been brainwashed by a college professor, by uh, the media that we have. Um, Is it really true that our country was built on the backs of slaves? Is it really true that today's for-profit prison labor, slave labor, is, is, is what we're benefiting from? The answer, of course, is no. Now, all of those evils exist, 
But Mick, this is important. Tell your friend to study history. Slavery has always been a fact of life in this world. It is a fallen world. God hates slavery, but that's always the way it's been. Now, it is true that we who are Christians, and especially, I guess, we who are white Christians, I hate making these distinctions because uh, God doesn't see color. I mentioned on a program yesterday that God sees only saved and unsaved. You're mine or you're not mine. And yet we're so focused on color. And these arguments that are coming from our universities and coming from the media, all the discussion about white privilege is focused on the one thing God says don't focus on. So we need to be aware these are unhealthy discussions. We live in a fallen world. Bad people live in this world. Bad things happen. And we're only going to stand before God accountable for what we've done. So should we hate slavery and the fact that it's a part of our country's history? Yes, we should hate it. But the way we resolve it is by to declare the message from the Word of God. And that's because only the Word of God, the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God can change the human heart. So no, we're not called to be responsible for what our ancestors did. We're to make sure that we don't live our lives the same way they did. And your friend or your the partner you were debating with has been influenced more by our media, social media, or university than by the Word of God. The old is gone, the new has come. You might tell him where that is in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And ask him to explain that to you. In the light of what he said to you, ask him to exegete that one verse. Without a reference to anything else, exegete that one verse. What does it mean? Now here's something that I want to add to this. When we are not in our Bibles and your friend claims to be a Christian, he is a misinformed Christian at best. But when we are not in our Bibles, or when we're viewing our Bibles through the perspective or the lens of this world, then we're always going to be convinced of doing the wrong thing. So since God only punishes or disciplines each of us individually for the sins that we commit. It's not the responsibility of the church to support reparations. It's not the responsibility of the church to fix all the evils of the past. It's the responsibility of the Church of Jesus Christ in 2019 to declare Jesus Christ who is freedom from our past. Now the media is not going to let that happen. Evidently, people who are unsaved love feeling guilty. We love feeling self-righteous. So when we feel guilty, we become self-righteous, and then we enforce a standard on other people that's impossible to keep. So tell your friend to open his Bible. Hope that helps, Mick. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585. Well, we've only got three minutes, so probably don't have time for a question. You know, I I made the comment um, that uh, this fear over Columbus Day and Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, it is an amazing thing to me what links that guilty people will go to to try to make themselves feel better. It never works because they always end up feeling worse than they did before. That's the glorious freedom that we have in Christ. If I thought that I had to bear the burden of other people's sins, when I'm not even able to bear the burden of my own sins, Jesus had to bear those. It it would be overwhelming. And this is why we who are believers need to stay on message. We ourselves cannot be racist. 
there's a teaching out there. There's a, 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 a large sentiment out there that all white people are racist at heart. And there's a case where Jesus said, do not judge lest ye be judged by God yourself. So we should hate racism. We should hate all forms of prejudice. We should tell people, no matter their color, their origin, about Jesus Christ. But none of the people that you're talking about repenting towards were slaves in the United States of America. And the message of freedom in Christ Jesus. Mick, you know, I uh, just had a thought, and then I'll, I'll cl- finish closing out the program. Um, the teaching that I did on Philemon, because it's about slavery at heart, as opposed to the freedom we find in Christ, is one that you might recommend to your friend, your debating friend. Um, he, he might find that uh, illuminating in the sense that there is a runaway slave who found freedom in Christ and then through having Jesus send him back to his former owner to make things right. Turns out Onesimus was a giant of a figure historically in the Christian church. Hey, good show today. Thanks for the calls. Thanks for the questions. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. Got a great Bible study tonight. Not that I'm going to be great, but the, the chapter's great. Um, CalvarySA.com, you can watch it. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. Paul and I will be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.